0: Hey there, fellow humans, Mark Lebuske here. I know that we've all come across jerks at work. I also know that I've been a jerk at work. So today's guest is the author of Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers and What to Do with Them, and also a professor of psychology at NYU, Tessa West. Fun, adventurous, cheeky, and an open book is my first impression of Tessa, but I'm going to leave it at that and have a listen. You will be blown away with how amazing Tessa is. We'll catch you at the end. Life can get pretty complicated. In the Simply Practically Human podcast, Mark LeBusk talks to incredible humans to see the way forward more clearly through the complexity in the world and in our heads.
1: Let's get ready to thrive.
0: I am delighted to be joined today by the Professor of Psychology at NYU and author of Jerks at Work, Tessa West. Tessa, thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks so much for having me on the show.
0: I think this is going to be a lot of fun. I've really looked forward to this one because I, I follow you a bit. I've become quite a fan of not just you on LinkedIn, but also Instagram as well. And, and lots of the <laughs> posts that you put up about what you're doing, with your, particularly with your family. I love to see what people are doing outside of their work, as we, as we call it. Yeah. We're going to talk about jerks at work today. And let's start with First impressions. Now, this might—I don't know if this is a tough one for you because I'd follow you quite a bit, but I'm going to ask you your first impressions of me.
1: Super organized, super on the ball, and very friendly. Wow! wow. So it's not very often that people actually come to me and say, "I have an idea of what I want to talk about." I'm a—I'm a big fan of where I'm at in this process of you know coming up with some questions, and then I really like how you have kind of a personal and professional angle. So you seem pretty balanced of a person. You're not like just work or, or you're like just play, but you like a nice, healthy balance between the two. That's my first impression.
0: Tessa, I've never been called organized before, but I'm going to, I'm, I'm <laughs> taking that. I'm going to have that one. Hey, for me, fun, adventurous. I've got cheeky as in a bit of a cheeky person um, and very much an open book. And we're going to get into that today. I love how you put yourself front and center of this work that you're doing because a lot of times people are going to think, well, that's great that you've written a book, but you you actually talk about yourself and a lot of your work, which I, I think is a really nice way to build credibility. So um, there you go.
1: Yeah, I definitely am cheeky and I definitely am all out there. So feel free to ask me any questions that um, other guests might feel are too personal. I'm happy to open up.
0: Well, don't you worry about that. I'll certainly go to those places. (laughs) So let's kick off with a bit of the backstory because I love the listeners to find out about the human being and what got you to where you are today. But let's hear about early days. Tell us about the Tessa West story.
1: So I grew up in Southern California. And I grew up with a mom who worked in special education and a dad who is in and out of construction jobs. So a a really loving family, but a really kind of unstable financial family. And I think I learned a lot about what it takes to actually have a career that lasts a really long time where you're not getting fired from jobs or you're not leaving pissed off, (laughs) which (laughs) I saw a lot going on in my family and i actually got my first i've been paying into the tax system since I was about 15 so i got my first job when i was 15 and i've been working ever since and i think when you grow up with a lot of financial instability in your household you have a job early and you're expected to actually help pay the bills you know starting in high school and i had at yeah, 1.7 different jobs in college and i've had just a ton of different kinds of jobs that i think as an academic is a little bit unusual i've You know, sold shoes, I've worked in a video rental store, I've wrapped Christmas presents. I've done all the things that introduced me to the various forms of work jerkery that I think actually kind of gave me a unique perspective. And I think I also have a a very sensitive family. A a lot of people have, you know, anxiety issues in my family. My mom was constantly crying on the couch, like so-and-so is so mean to me and My dad was a military guy. So his answer would just be like, suck it up. (laughs) Tell them to F off. And I just saw how these strategies didn't work. And then people would hide and be really stressed out all the time or end up in like this big screaming matches. And so I mean, not to put my parents on the bus. I love them very much. But I did grow up watching a lot of bad strategies of how to deal with these things. And then if you don't deal with these things, what this does to your family? You know, so when I went to college, I started studying things like stress contagion and emotion contagion. And I really saw how if you have a really bad experience at work or, you know, in the classroom or wherever, you bring that stuff home and it affects your kids and affects your spouse. And so I became really kind of obsessed with understanding that. And that's really why I became a social psychologist.
0: you made the point about when you don't deal with it. And and a lot of times we human beings, you'll know much more about this than me. We human beings practice the skillful art of work avoidance. We just let it sit there and we look away from it. Why is it that we just let this stuff play out, but we continue to just carry the stress that goes with it?
1: So I think there's kind of a few things at play. The first is a lot of us are raised to believe that this is just part of what being a grown up is, that you should just suck it up. We don't get to pick who we work with. At least that's how I was raised. I think this kind of younger generation entering the workforce is very different about this. But I was raised with people, bosses will yell at you. People will be jerks. Suck it up. This is not like, these aren't your friends. So you shouldn't allow it to affect you. So we have these misperceptions of of what things actually affect us. And then I think on top of that, we don't learn conflict management strategies. We don't learn them with our spouses, with our kids. We certainly don't learn them at work. And at least where I work with, if you're getting some kind of conflict management training, it's because you've really screwed up. Like HR's called you in, you're about ready to get fired. You have like weekend conflict management school. (laughs) It's not, you know, something that all of us learn. It's a punishment of some sort. It's something that we carry with shame in. And I think that's really harmed a lot of us because we end up just avoiding the conflict or trying to suppress those emotions, telling ourselves none of this matters. And it really does. And eventually we'll bubble up and it'll affect things. So, I think both of those things are at play, and we don't have the strategies. I mean, some of us go our whole lives without learning how to give upward feedback that's negative to a boss or someone, you know, how to tell someone that you're unhappy at work. And, you know, that's why there's all these advice columns where people write in and they're like, so and so gave me the side eye, and they unfriended me. What do I do now? <laughs> we have no idea. I'm, I'm in the C suite. What do I do? <laughs> they unfriended me. You know, it's like talking, but it's really common.
0: I love the idea of, um the training is punishment because just think about the mindset at that stage. That person's well, laying in the fetal position in the corner of the room, sucking their thumb. <laughs> and and then we we'll say, now we're going to train you on how to do this. Well, I, I don't think the mind mindset would be there. I saw one of your posts this morning, you commented on an article that was written and you talk about the fact that we're going to talk about jerks at work now is that you were one. So <laughs> again, what I love about you is you put yourself front and centre and out there. So And you also made this comment, given your background and your now your the field that you're in, you should have known better than that. So, talk about some of what I don't know how to call this. I'm going to call it some of your jerkness at work. What what were some (laughs) of the traits? Yeah, what were some of the the traits that you had in your work jerkery?
1: You know, the the ones that I know of, and let's just say that we all probably have a bit of a glacier problem when it comes to our work jerkery. The stuff we're aware of is a tiny piece of our actual. um, work jerky, I think. So I think it's really important that we're honest about this. And one of the reasons I wrote the book and I talked about in that um, interview was that I was in charge of something. I was in charge of an office move at NYU and people were just resistant, didn't want to do it, even though the building was nicer, we were going to the part of the building. And I just became really bullheaded and stubborn and irritated with everybody around me. So the people who I used to like kind of started avoiding me, I I noticed that they wouldn't be in their offices at the right time. Or one person who I really care about, a close colleague of mine started crying once because I told her I was going to put her in a room that had like this weird pole in the middle of it. (laughs) (laughs) She wants to be in a room where in the middle of it is like this huge pole. I'm like, who cares about the pole? You know, I'm yelling at her about this stupid pole. And and she's looking at me with fear because I had so much control over her outcomes. And what a lot of us don't realize is we gain power and status and influence is the smallest things to us are really big creature comforts to other people. And I just became really callous. And, you know, I wasn't great to myself. Either. I was starting to drink earlier and earlier in the day. You know? <laughs> it's four, it's three, it's five o'clock somewhere. And I think I really realized, like, I actually study social interactions for living. I bring people to lab, I make them uncomfortable, and then I tell them how to make it better. And if this can happen to me, it can happen to anyone. And I think, you know, that's just one of the ways I've been a jerk. I also was a neglectful boss, you know, certainly writing this book during the pandemic with a third grader at home. I sucked. I just really dialed it in with a lot of things. And I had people begging to meet me at 10 p.m. because that was the only time, you know, I looked available. And I think, you know, and what I learned is no one told me, no one came up to me and said, Tessa, you're a jerk you suck. You we, we used to like you, now we hate you, or at least we're avoiding you. I sort of had to read the tea leaves to figure it out. And part of that is because I do study these things and I could look for the clues, but no one actually told me I was a jerk. And I think most of us will never find out because no one will tell you. You probably won't receive that news very well. And if they do, it's in a screaming match on their way out the door or something like that. So I like to be honest about this because I think we all have some version of ourselves that isn't awesome and that's okay. You know, and it's okay if you screwed up. I think, you know, the key is kind of figuring out how you can improve your behavior moving
0: forward. The self-awareness is amazing. Um, As you were telling the story about the pole in the office, I could also (laughs) hear you saying in your mind, just suck it up, just suck it up.
1: (laughs) It's a pole, who cares? It's not going to affect your work. She's like, how can I look at people? It was literally, we'd have to build a table with like a hole in the middle of the pole. And then everyone would have to be like, looking over the pole, who's going to be behind, you know? kind of like going to a wedding where you have like one of those huge flower arrangements on the table <laughs> and
0: no one can see each other but for 30 years <laughs> you know. so yeah, um, I, get it, yeah. I did a podcast <laughs> the other day a little solo version where i talk about the mythical creatures of them and they and we're always blaming it's them and it's they they're doing it to us <laughs> and um one of the things i i suggested is that they, these people don't have crystal balls where they can look into them and go like, I don't have one here that I could look into and go, oh, Tessa thinks I'm a jerk. I don't know that. Yeah. So how do we start to work on helping people to feel that they're doing good by raising things rather than just hanging on to them? And, and like you said, yeah. at the end of the day, it ends up in a screaming match of someone running out of the room. How, how can we encourage people to, to let other people know that perhaps their behavior is not what it should be?
1: I mean, this is a great question. I actually study um, accuracy and perception and why some people are really good at reading others and others aren't. And I think there's two things at play. So first, most of us feel like we're open books when it comes to what we're feeling and thinking. We assume that if we're thinking something about someone, that person can just automatically read it in our behavior. Most people actually, their behavior, their cues don't match at all what they're thinking. Yep. In fact, I have research showing that the more uncomfortable you are, the more you smile, the friendlier you are. So sometimes it's like opposite land. And I think that can be really tough for people. So we're already starting with a disadvantage of people aren't giving off accurate information. On top of that, there is huge variability in how good people are reading others. Some people are really good at it. Some people are really bad at it. Your confidence is correlated almost zero with how good you actually are. So that's actually really hard to improve. Improving people's empathic ability, their ability to read people is really hard. So what we have to move the needle on is what we express. And we have to be better at being really clear. And I think the best way to do that is to do it immediately after the thing, So if someone says something that hurt your feelings, maybe they interrupted you or they cut you off or they stole your idea or restated your idea in a better way and then they got credit for it. We have to say something immediately after the event occurred so that it's specific. So the key here is that our behaviors are really titrated to to specific moments, not to our feelings and not to broad generalizations. So kind of like you wouldn't wait to tell your spouse you're a slob and you don't do anything because they, they didn't empty the dishwasher, they didn't pick up their socks. You would say you didn't pick up your socks and the same is true at work. You would say, you know, when you interrupted me, you might not have realized this, but I felt like I didn't get a chance to kind of finish what I said. Do you mind in the next meeting if I open by saying X? So you you also need to give them an out and you need to give them a way of fixing the situation. So don't just complain, but solve. And I think, you know, in general, being solution focused is much better than being problem focused. It actually helps you gain status and influence too. So that's kind of a side bonus. But by being specific, clear communicators, it's less threatening, it's more bite-sized, and you're less likely to offend someone because you're not actually commenting on their personality. You're just commenting on a very small thing they did. So we all have to work harder to do that because it's really hard to move the needle on the perception part. on getting people better. It's sort of trying to figure out through all these mixed signals what we're actually trying to say. We need to just be clear communicators and all of us can, I think, do a better job of that.
0: I wonder why I thought of this when you were talking about immediate feedback and specific, I thought straight away of one of my least favorite things called a performance review, where managers yeah, managers hang on to things for three months and they don't have anything to say. So it's like, oh, by the way, Tessa, your communication's not that good. And you're like, what do you mean? Oh, well, three months ago. And, and all of a sudden we then end up in like I call it a shit fight. That's what it ends up being. Yeah. So so yeah. I love that idea, being immediate with your feedback, being specific about it and, yeah, put your socks into the wash basket rather than leave them on the floor where the wash basket fairy turns up and puts them in there for you. <laughs> I love that.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Definitions of the jerk. So I've, I've written some things down that I looked at because I wanted to put a bit of spice into it. Annoyingly stupid or a foolish person, cruel, small-minded and unlikable, not, not very favourable. Definitions. What's your definition of a jerk?
1: You know, this is a real struggle for me because I felt very ambivalent about the title. It went through various iterations and we landed on jerk because it's not a square (laughs) one. That's really how we got there. You can imagine the other versions that add. You know, I think jerks get a bad reputation. Maybe I say that because I see myself as one sometimes. I think not all jerks are actually trying to destroy you. A lot of them are accidental jerks, but the jerkery. The labeling is in the receiving end. So it's the person on the receiving end of the behavior who sees you as a jerk. Maybe you don't see yourself as a jerk. Maybe you're a micromanager who cares about detail or you know whatever, but you're labeled as that because your behavior is harmful to another person in some way, regardless of what your intentions are. And I think we all know what it feels like to call someone a jerk. And so that's really, to me, what that word means. But I definitely think there's versions of jerks that you know are more ill-meaning, they're taking advantage of situations to be terrible people, whereas others are more the product of the situations that kind of turn them into terrible people.
0: Yeah, I have a great, a great love, I'm going to say, for Professor Marty Linsky, who's part of the team that created the adaptive leadership work. I was fortunate to come over your way in 2014 and do some work on that. Now, Marty talks a lot about people don't wake up in the morning and the first thing they think of is what am I going to do today to piss Tessa off? Like I didn't wake up this morning <laughs> okay. and go, right, I know 7am my time, I'm going to be an arse. I'm going to see what I can do to really knock Tessa off her game today. I wake up going, I can't wait to have this conversation. It's going to be fun. We're not really bad people, are we? Like what, your thoughts around this, That what else is at play? Because we don't turn up to try and destroy someone else or to put them on the back foot. What's going on for human beings
1: A lot of us have some tendencies that aren't awesome. You know, maybe we're a little too competitive. Who knows where that came from? That was bred into us from a young age. It was encouraged. But I think as a social psychologist, I think the situation matters a lot. And I think that situations turn people who have some tendencies into really shitty coworkers. I think the kiss-up kick down is kind of a perfect example of that. You take someone who's a little competitive. They're probably awesome on sports teams in high school if they were good. But you put them in an office environment and they think that they can just tear people down to get ahead. And you know what? They're probably rewarded for that in some way. And we're a lot like just like a rat in a box. Like the more you reward our behavior, the more we're going to do it. We're not better than other mammals that you you can just teach them to do things by giving them extra meat pellets or whatever, you know, like basic (laughs) behaviorism. I really think like mammals are mammals and human beings, If you reward them or you have a power structure where only two people can make it to the top, you are implying very heavily that you have to kick down to get ahead. How else are you going to climb that ladder? We have these structures that are just terrible for individual one-on-one human behavior that might work for an organization, but they're really bad for interpersonal interaction. And the two are often in conflict. And we don't think about that when we put them into place our systems suck. And I think because of that, people leave and they try to go to a new job and then run into another system that encourages bad behavior and so on and so forth. We have these like hedonic treadmill habits and I'm guilty of this as well. That just get us in like up shit creek without a paddle. (laughs) (laughs) And my like, my hearty dad would say, we can't stop trying to do more and more things without thinking of how it's going to affect the people who work for us and how we're going to neglect them maybe get stressed and micromanage them you know there's collateral damage for this approach that's like very much in the air right now that is also at play and then i'd also say we're really terrible at predicting our own emotional responses and how we deal with stress yeah most of us like dramatically underestimate what losing one hour of sleep does to our mood it really affects it and we just don't anticipate when life just throws wrenches into our plans and it really makes us act kind of nasty. All of these things are at play. And often you say you don't wake up and say, how oh, am I going to screw Tessa today? I'm like, How am I going to make her like fall off her game? But you might be a little sleep deprived, or maybe you had a fight with your spouse, or maybe your cat dying or something. Yep. Those things could make you act this way, but outside of your awareness. And I think that's also often at play.
0: Self-awareness is such an important piece. And we tend not to do that well. I, I, you talked about the system before in in my first book called Being Human. I write about the system that we've grown up in. Is it has some qualities that we should keep, but it has a lot of things that aren't really aligned today to how we need to embrace more of our humanity. And one of those things is we get rewarded for being technically proficient. So yeah. we get rewarded for selling the most things or reducing the cost of this or whatever it might be. And then what we get rewarded for, we keep doing. And all of a sudden we've got to manage a group of human beings and we keep doing the same things and then we piss them off. So I think there's something for managers to think about is how do we, and I don't think we need to break the system, but we need to enhance the system and enable it to be better. What are some of your thoughts around bringing something into that system that's going to make it so there'll be less jerks at work.
1: We need better early detection systems, but nice. I also think we just need some like remedial training on how to communicate better. You're right. We, we definitely prioritize technical skills over, say, empathic ability, communication skills, and even in programs like LinkedIn Recruiter that try to sort of sample these so-called soft skills you know, are are you a good leader? Are you well-liked? They look at like page likes and how many followers you have. Basic popularity measures on social media, which are actually negatively correlated with how awesome you are in real life. (laughs) So, you know, we're using these data that actually aren't predictive of how people behave in the real world. What does predict it are other skills that we often don't test. So I have a, a new paper coming out. We developed a measure called status acuity. So people, some people can read the room and some can't. And we have a measure where you watch groups of people interacting strangers and you rate their status and that predicts things like conflict in groups, how much you're able to kind of deal with conflict over status and jockeying and things like that. Those kinds of skills predict how well groups perform, predict how well people perform above and beyond their skills because they're able to deal with disputes early and often. They're able to get groups back on task and we never measure those things. We never sample those things. In fact, they're often devalued, especially in tech. Or if I was to like tell them this stuff, they'd like wave me away and say, "This all sounds like bullshit, soft stuff. Like this isn't real. Your code isn't elegant. Like we don't care. (laughs) You know." So you're right. We don't value these things. So I think we need to supplement with some like basic remedial communication training and also sampling those those individual skills that directly predict performance. No one believes me when I say that, but I'm like, think about it. In teams, you have to get rid of conflict early. You need those people. Otherwise, you're going to fight them
0: all the time. I knew I was going to love this because um, that, that brings up the old what you can't measure, you can't manage, which I think is bullshit because um, the intangibility of empathy and compassion and just that self-awareness stuff. I always say to people, what if we had KPIs for thankfulness and helpfulness and fun <laughs> yeah. and care? We, yeah. we can't measure them, but you know what we should do? Just become bloody aware of them. And help people to become aware, and you watch how how things start to change. Hey, um, I was a bit jealous of this, but I loved it as well. You've been um, your book has been compared to a book that I love, the No Arsehole Rule by Bob Sutton. Um, I don't know if you've you've <laughs> yeah. seen his book, but his book is is amazing. Oh yes,
1: Bob's awesome. He's <laughs> he's awesome in a lot of ways outside of the asshole series, but yeah, he's he's sort of like the OG. That's yeah, I, I
0: think he's fantastic. So, um, give us a bit of an overview of the seven types of jerks. I'd, I'd love, because you've already said a couple of them. And, you know, when I've had a look at your book, the language, I hope this sounds okay. The language, that good plain language, where you're just like, that just makes sense straight away. Um. So what, what are the seven types?
1: Yeah, so the first type is the kiss up, kick downer. So this is that person who just has a singular goal of climbing to the top by any means necessary. And if that means destroying the people around them, Often through subtle insults or you know subtle acts of humiliation, that is what they'll do. And they're infuriating because the boss loves them. They're really skilled at their job. They're, yep. they're quite good at their job. The next is the credit stealer. And I think we've all felt at some point that we didn't get credit for our work. The really insidious type I talk about is the wolf in sheep's clothing. They're the friend, often actually the boss, who sort of waits for you to step away. They take credit for your hard work or your good ideas. Then they'll also kind of grant you credit here and there to make it look like they're a good team player. So they're very good at impression management. Then we have the bulldozers. So we all learned this person during the pandemic. Um, the kind of in the moment one talks over everyone. They have no inner monologue. They, you know, take up all the oxygen in the room. But the kind of more frustrating, dangerous one is the power player who will go behind the scenes to kind of crush whatever you and your colleagues or group are trying to do by questioning the process, not the outcome. Yep. So, they'll, yeah, they'll say, oh, they're, the vote wasn't clear. No one knew what we were doing, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, Then we have the free riders. So this is a very common type of jerk. I, I talk about oxen in the book. <laughs> Non-humans as well do this. So free riders, they're experts at doing nothing and having the veneer of work and getting away with it. They're often very charismatic and well-liked and friendly and attractive and all those kind of fun things that we like that that aren't actually useful at work. And then we have micromanagers. So this is the most common form of management. Not jerk management, but just all management. And I think you referenced this before. Micromanagers have a lot of technical skills. They have always been good at their jobs, So they've been promoted to leaders. But for them, everything's equally urgent and everything's equally important. So they don't really know how to balance those two. Um, Then we have the opposite side of that, which is the neglectful boss. So these folks tend to disappear for long periods of time, show up, freak out because they've been out of the loop, you know, be really authoritarian in the moment, tell you to make a whole bunch of changes and then disappear again. And often they're micromanaging someone else, you know, while they're ignoring you, they're micromanaging someone else. And, you know, they go between people and in your own timeline of a relationship, you'll get both of those sides. And then we have a gaslighter. So these are the scariest jerks. They tend to be pathological liars, but they lie to deceive on, you know, a very grand scale. They're building an alternative reality for you. And it's usually motivated to keep you quiet for some reason, either because of their own ethical behavior, or because they can't actually get anyone to work for them, so they mm. have to sort of keep you private to them, and they cut you off socially, and that's kind of their signature moves to isolate their victims.
0: Now, just for the people listening to this at the moment, I'm going to ask you a question. When you were listening to those descriptions of the seven types of jerks, listeners, were you thinking about somebody else, or were you thinking about yourself? I think you should think about yourself because I think this is where this work starts is when we know, I used to call myself, I was bad Mark and good Mark. So when you were talking <laughs> about that person that didn't care who they climbed over, mid-20s Mark overpromoted way past his level of competence, just wanted to get to a title before he turned 30 and got there but left a trail of destruction. Now, back then I wouldn't have given a shit about that, but now when I look back on it I go, Oh, what an ass that I was back then, but I I didn't (laughs) really care. So listeners think about it. Are you thinking about them and they, or are you thinking about yourself? Hey, do you have a favorite?
1: Ooh, the nearest and dearest to my heart is the Kiss Up Kick Downer because when I sold shoes at at a high-end shoe store, that person really made my life a living hell. And I'm glad that I can now monetize my pain (laughs) (laughs) by writing about him. I love it. I, I have a really kind of visceral response because I was young. I was, you know, 19. I had no idea that someone would try to destroy me to sell shoes, but that person made thousands and thousands of dollars more than me. So there yeah. was a, a bottom line. So that person I really feel close to just in terms of like the trauma that they the when I wrote about them. But I also feel like I can relate the most to the neglectful boss. So yeah. I'm very hands-off at work. I wrote the neglectful boss, very much keeping myself in mind, knowing that when I get stressed out, my tendency isn't to be anxious and and to double down on people. It's to like turn it all off and go watch Netflix for 14 hours or something. You know, when we get overloaded at work, a lot of us fall into that and then I freak out and I'm like, what's going on? You know, and everyone's <laughs> like, we haven't seen you in two months. Chill out. So <laughs> You know, that one is my dark, that's my dark passenger. <laughs> it's like Dexter language, but...
0: Um. When you go to the 14 hours of Netflix, Tessa, what are you watching?
1: Oh, gosh. I like a lot of true crime. Yep. I mean, I watch it all. I really just finished watching um this really cute romantic comedy on Netflix. It's like 100% fresh right now. It's like queer love story, high school kids. I watch that, but you know, I'll watch anything with dragons and gargoyles that involves like no remote resemblance to anything in my real life. <laughs> so, <laughs> escapism.
0: <laughs> so tell us about, give us, give us a few tools and tips on how to, how to deal with the neglectful boss. Because when, when you were saying that, I was like, people must be wondering which test is going to walk through the door. It's like, wonder which version's turning up. And I'm, I'm, I bet you there's plenty yeah. of different versions and be like, shit, I wonder who's turning up today. How, how can people, first of all, get in their mind, first of all, this isn't a bad person. It's just, that's just how they are in that time. But what's some of your wisdom on how to deal with that?
1: So I think, and these are the tricks that actually worked on me. that yeah. I teach people to work, to try when I become neglectful. If this feels like you, one of the biggest barriers to getting stuff done with people is scheduling it. So really simple things is I have separate calendars for different groups of people in my life that they have just specialized access to. And instead of doing back and forth with sort of everyone all 50 people in my life, I actually have these kind of subgroups, a little like you have like subgroups at work that have access that they can kind of just sign up and there's no back and forth. The other thing is a lot of people feel like, especially if you're low, you're low status, that you have to act like it's an emergency to get your boss's attention and that you can't go to other people for help. And I think those, these emails that start with urgent in all caps are never actually going to get read. So we have this kind of lay belief that if we act like the sky is falling, our boss will care, Yeah. but they see that. And they're like, Oh, I have no time for this person's drama today. Instead you're going to have to go against intuition and ask for a shorter meeting. That's like two weeks away from now. And really focus on exactly what they need your help with. Not all the things, but pick like two or three things. And then I say the last thing is a lot of neglectful bosses are actually victims of time thieves. So they're really good people who like to help others. And maybe you're working with them because they're actually really good mentors and great bosses. But then people are just constantly sucking them dry like little vampires all day (laughs) long. And I think you have to help them recognize that they have that problem. So my husband's Canadian and he has a real problem with these people, like complete, like he left like a homeless person in his lab once, like, which is fine, but it was like totally disruptive, but he felt bad. Yeah. So we let him in and, you know, this kind of thing. And his students had to sit him down and say like, look, you're spending five hours a week with Brando's and one hour a week with us. And so people don't often realize that balance of so making them aware and even offering to offload some of those time thieves, if they could be, that utility for you has helped. So I think with a neglectful boss, it's more of like five or ten little things yeah. to gain back their time and to gain back their energy. There's not kind of one solution. The minute you can see those little red flags, and and most of us neglectful bosses have those, and it usually takes the form of you open up our calendar and our diary and it's completely full, and you're like, okay, this person's going to start neglecting. I can I, I give them two to three days lag, and then the neglect's going to kick in because they're going to get overwhelmed. That level of transparency with the people who report to me has actually really helped them for them see it before I see.
0: It. You talked about this before: solutions coming up with solutions, like not looking at the person as an ass and a neglectful thing, but going, "Hey, how can I help that person?" And sometimes, I guess, when we're reporting to somebody, we can feel a bit helpless with that because the hierarchy says that they'll come up with the answer. But I, I love how we're not writing them off. We're actually trying to come in and help them to see perhaps what they can't see or what they can see, but they yeah. look away from. I love that. Simple, complicated, complex. I, I, I'm a pretty simple sort of a human being. So I, I, maybe I'm too simple. And I think we should just not try and overcomplicate things. I know there's yeah. a lot of complexity because we're human beings and, and all that sort of stuff, but I'm sure in your work, you've had a bit of a look at this. Any thoughts... If you do think this, and maybe you think differently to me, but I have this view that we're romanced by the flame of the complicated and the complex. Geez, I hope you've got some data and research that supports what I think here. Yeah. Why are we like that?
1: Kind in academia, people love overcomplicating things all the time, and parsimony is hard. Mm. I actually think, you know, as you climb up, and you, you know this, it, it's harder to be simple than it is to be complicated and it's harder to write a 50 word email than it is a 200 word email yep. simple and elegant is harder than wordy and complex and you know obtuse and unclear a lot of us have an intuition that complex is smarter and it makes us look smarter the more complicated we come across the more complicated our communications but no one really wants that and we really underestimate how much our cognitive load doesn't want that mm. and doesn't like that and You probably picked up in my book. I I write really simply. And I actually think that most people like that, no matter where they are. I agree. (laughs) Sweet intro. People like clean, clear communication. And often the advice I give seems really simple. It's like write emails where you say why we're going to meet, not just that we need to meet. Well, that seems stupid, but nobody does it. (laughs) So I'm always all about the simple solution over the complex one. But yeah, human beings have a tendency to want to glom onto the complex. It feels like we're covering our bases more, the more complicated something is. And we're we're terrified of leaving something out. I see this a lot in organizations with their their DE&I approach, their leadership approach. They're like, we have 72 principles and 14 sub-principles underneath each of those principles. I'm (laughs) like, yeah, i stopped stop listening to you at 72. Three principles, you get three go pick them. Or like, here's your 15 microaggressions that you can't do in the next 12 minutes. I'm like, okay, you lost me. So <laughs> I think that like long, dumb, once it's double digits, I'm done. <laughs> simple, clean. Yeah. <laughs> Look,
0: it, it's your book in particular, like really resonates because my books are, are simple as well. People say, oh, your books are just common sense. And I go, and?
1: Yeah. And no one does Like, it. like What do you want? <laughs> what, what
0: Do you want them to be, should you be looking for the the real answer in between the lines, like we shouldn't try and make leadership or human leadership like a game of hide and seek that we've got to, yeah. the other end of it too, we shouldn't just give it to people on a platter because I want people to, I want people, this is not going to sound very human. You've got to suffer in some way in order to grow and to learn, yeah. but your Simple
1: doesn't mean easy. Exactly. You know, Simple can be very hard, exactly. but you should still know exactly what you need to do to get there. That part shouldn't be a guess.
0: No, I love it. And that's why I think the book, and for people who are listening, like get hold of the book because it's written in a very simple way. Have you heard the term bogan before? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so I say my book is, Mm -hmm. I I said I've written a book written by a bogan for other bogans.
1: (laughs) I love that. Because
0: some people will be like it's just not academic enough. And you could most likely lay me down on the couch and talk to me about that because I have a bit of an aversion to academia I'm like, I'm a bogan. I do and
1: too, and I am one. Yeah, I know. Bloody handy.
0: So, so quickly talk about that because you said I could ask you anything. How do you deal with that?
1: I wrote this book after becoming a full professor, so it couldn't be used against me in, any capacity <laughs> in, in my journey. But, you know, academia is – I have a lot of thoughts. You could sit me down on the couch. I think our power structure is super screwed up. Tenure has its issues there is no selection for people who are actually really good communicators. I mean, some of people who become like deans and provosts, but they're more the exception than the rule. And I think there is a problem in any profession where everyone's actually quite smart. So everyone has the IQ, but they don't have the social skills and the communication skills. And when you're dealing with really smart people, they're very resistant to being told that they suck at something and to be like willing to admit that they're bad at it. And I think there's a real resistance in academia, but in, in a lot of professions around like, don't tell me that I don't know how to do this. I'm like, you're running a lab and you've never been trained on how to actually even give feedback, like a really basic feedback conversation. You know, you don't actually know how to tell someone what growth mindset is or like how not to insult people. So I'm a bit of a fish out of water in academia. Um, as you can probably tell, I don't have the veneer of a typical professor. but You know, I also write, you know, I'm a statistician. That's why I was hired. I'm a methodologist. You want to read my complicated shit? Go read all my equations and my methods papers. But most people don't care about that stuff and it (laughs) doesn't help them (laughs) navigate life. I also came from blue collar people. Yes. And like, those are more my people. I didn't come from the ivory tower. I did not, I was not raised in like this kind of coastal elite that I have found myself in. I grew up with a conservative Christian blue collar household. And I think that's definitely kind of shaped the way I talk and the way I write and the way I communicate that makes me not a member of the typical academic club. I, I When I wrote this book, I was like, can I swear in this? Will you guys let me swear? And they're like, yes. I'm like, okay. Then yes, you are my publisher. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so.
0: Swearing's okay when it's done for the right reasons. I think it's a great thing. You are a great example of, the combination for good of street smarts and book smarts will tend to be one or the other but when you can get both of those and and I think what I love about what you've been talking about right from the start is that you've learned the lessons younger in life around you know the financial instability and the things that would happen in the family and you've been able to take that get your jobs early and then get into this work and use it for good and not for evil I love it
1: Yeah, I don't even know how I could use this for a moment. I guess you could read this book and figure out how to be a jerk, but you're probably going to hurt yourself more than anyone else around you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I think that's kind of what the thing is about jerks and Bob Sutton's assholes. I I read these people, like one person who wrote bit someone. I'm like, the person who did the biting is way worse off at the end of the day than the the person with the teeth marks because... They're never going to get hired again. They're going to get <laughs> blacklisted from everywhere. You know, <laughs> this person's a biter. Like on there, it's just I don't. I don't think our bad behaviors actually serve us well. And I think it's actually really hard to be a successful evil person unless you have a lot of money, like insane amounts of money. <laughs> then you can be a successful evil person. But the rest of us, we're just going to like get punished for that. <laughs> you know, it doesn't behoove us to be that way.
0: I'm making an assumption here, but I, I, I hope it's true. Is that the feedback? You must be getting some pretty good feedback about what what sort of messages you get back from people after they've read your book.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. A lot of people are like, "I had trauma when I read your book. You brought <laughs> <laughs> twenty years of my life." Thanks for that. Oh no, the <laughs> yeah, end. No, I mean, I think people feel like the strategies are doable. Yeah. They're not easy. I don't want to paint this picture that you can just solve all your problems in a day. And if anyone promises you that, you shouldn't believe them. It's like a diet book. You can't like just solve it all with a juice cleanse or whatever. But they feel like these things, even for people who are shy or uncomfortable with conflict, are actually doable and they can try them. And I think that's kind of like the best feedback I've gotten, or at least the best positive feedback. Of course, there's always negative feedback. She doesn't know what she's talking about. You know, that always happens when you're an author. But the best positive feedback is I actually feel like I can do these things right. and I feel confident that I can try them. And then I hear all kinds of crazy ass stories of people that should have been fired. And, you know, a lot of bad bosses that just get promoted over and over again, and, you know, moved around from company to company, just swapped around, but never really gotten rid of, they failed up. So that's the main type of jerk people like to talk about. I love They're it. evil boss.
0: So where can people get hold of the book and if they want to connect with you and we don't want to, um, don't connect with Tessa because she might become neglectful tester and she won't respond to (laughs) your requests. But, uh, when she's in that little window where it's not like that, I know you're very good. So where (laughs) where can, where can people get your book Tessa, and where can they connect with you?
1: So you can go to tessawestoffer.com and there's a link on there to buy the book. It will work in whatever country you're in. It will take you to a retailer. You can also take my quizzes on my website. And get feedback if you're in, into that sort of thing, and you can find me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Tessa West NYU.
0: I took your quiz. I took one of the quizzes and it was I, I loved it because it's like again you talked about the realness of it. Like it's when you're looking at the questions, you go, "Yep, I've seen that. That's happened before. I was that, or I, someone else was like that." So please, people, go on there and and take the quiz. And I'm going to say this: answer it honestly. Don't answer it in a way that you're hoping to get the answers that you want. Answer it, honestly. Tessa, I knew this was going to be a lot of fun because of my first impressions of you, and it's been enormous amount of fun. You go now and enjoy a bit of self-care yeah. late in the day, and uh, I'll start my day. But thank you very much for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. This is awesome.
0: I really love it when I come off the end of a podcast recording, having met someone who just tells it like it is and makes it so simple and practical. And I know there's um, there's good reason for me to say that because of the the name of my podcast, but like what Tessa shared today, the seven different types of jerks, going into a bit more depth around how to deal with the ne- neglectful jerk. I loved it how she talked about the idea that we don't know at times that we're being jerks and it's really helpful that others can tell us. But then we get into the issue then of giving feedback. And if we don't know how to give feedback, this thing just spirals into what she called in the end, a shouting match as someone runs out the door. Now, giving immediate feedback to people when things happen. Great example of the socks on the floor. Being specific about that. And I think the really important one there was coming up with solutions for people and helping them solve their jerkness rather than continuing to want to put more stories of their jerkness into their file in your bad news filing cabinet. So, You can just create a story about them that serves your purpose rather than serves others. Looking into self-awareness came up a bit. The idea that we need to be aware of when we're being jerks because we work in a system that I think encourages this jerkness. And we've just got to start to realize that as we move forward, and Tessa talked briefly about The younger generation and what they'll accept now is that they won't accept this sort of stuff. So they'll move. They'll move on if they're working for a jerk. They won't spend time in trying to work their way through it or just put up with it. I love how open she was about her early days and the things that have shaped her up, you know, getting working in jobs early, the financial instability, the sorts of things that have shaped her up to become what she is today, which is an amazing human being who uses their own stories to bring this book to life. And I just want to finish by saying this, to get a comparison to Bob Sutton, who has a series of amazing books, but the one I love the most is The No Arsehole Rule. You should check that one out as well. That's being an esteemed company. And I can understand why that is after spending 45 minutes talking with Tessa. So check her books out. Go and do the little survey that she has, which will give you a bit of a sense of, where you're at in regards to your jerkness or or not. I think I did it myself and it I did it honestly and um, came up with an answer that was positive, which you like, but I wonder what would have happened if it had to negative. So give that a go. Hey, if you love this one as much as I did, why not rate it five stars? Leave us a little comment as to why. If you liked it, share it with your friends. If you know some people who could really benefit from looking into whether or not they're one of these seven types of jerks, please share it with them, encourage them to get hold of the book, take the survey as well, and just have a good look at themselves in the mirror. But until next time, let's keep it simple, keep it practical, and keep it human. Bye for now.